0: Thinking Aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. And I'm Jeffrey Mishlove, too. You might say I'm Jeffrey's alter ego, at least for the purposes of this video conversation. You see, I'm going to have a video conversation with myself today, and the topic of this discussion is going to be one of the most important concepts that I know, mind at large. I was first introduced to the concept of mind at large in 1979 when Russell Targ, Hal Puthoff, and Charlie Tart co-edited an anthology of research papers having to do with remote viewing. The anthology was based on a couple of symposiums. I believe they were presented for the International Association of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, the IEEE. And Basically, the idea of Mind at Large was invoked, although not specifically described in this anthology, as a way to account for the striking phenomenon of remote viewing. Subsequently, I learned that the concept of mind at large was actually originally introduced by Aldous Huxley, the great writer who happened to have died on the same day that Uh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Aldous Huxley was uh, very influential for me as I was a high school student. Uh, His book Brave New World and Brave New World Revisited were very much topics of discussion in those days. Now, I didn't realize at the time that Aldous Huxley had taken mescaline and had written about mescaline and psychedelics. That wasn't discussed really, when I was in high school, but I I learned about it later. And he invoked the concept of mind at large in order to account for his experiences taking mescaline, taking psychedelics. And this is the kind of an experience, I would say, based on my own uh, psychedelic encounters, which number somewhere over a hundred, that the drug, well, the name psychedelic itself means mind manifesting, and the idea being that the the contents of the subconscious, the unconscious, the collective unconscious, the the mythological uh, contents that are shared by all of humanity, become manifest, become evident. So, in some of my early psychedelic experiences, for example, I would look at a friend of mine and their face would change rapidly, one after another, after another, after another face, as if I was looking at all of their past lives. One might see, say that I was having access, perhaps, to what is sometimes called the Akashic Records. So there are many, many different terms that have been evoked by psychologists and philosophers over the years that are roughly equivalent to mind at large. William James, for example, brought up the concept of the cosmic reservoir, which is uh, what he felt perhaps enabled great Spiritual mediums like Mrs. Piper, who he studied extensively, enabled them to obtain information uh, about the the intimate details of people who were deceased, that were known only to those with whom they were most intimate. I would be remiss if I didn't begin by saying, or saying at least near the beginning here, that the concept of mind at large is very, very close to our ideas of God. Now, theologians have added many, many things to the concept of of God. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. God is totally good. God has a plan for humanity and, and so on. And I think because psychologists and philosophers didn't want to include all of this theological baggage. They tried to use mind at large as a more neutral term to account for things that could be described empirically, either through the experiences of people taking psychedelic drugs or, in the the second instance, remote viewing or clairvoyance. Remote viewing is just a more recent name for what used to be called clairvoyance or clear-seeing. Obtaining information anywhere across space, and in fact, across time as well. It seems as if time and space are no boundaries to what a gifted remote viewer can access in terms of information. Now, one might ask. To what extent does the concept of mind at large actually point toward God? And this is an interesting idea. I think I'd like to delve into because esoteric traditions, esoteric traditions say, as above, so below. That comes from the emerald tablet, it's a classic expression of hermeticism, as above, so below. How does that relate to mind at large? I've always thought that so below meant here in this earthly plane. Now, you might say maybe it means something different, maybe it means the underworld, and and we can talk about that. The underworld can mean many, many different things, including, of course, hell, hellish regions of consciousness. Well, mind at large would certainly embrace what we call heaven and what we call hell. In fact, it certainly fair to say that mind at large would have to embrace what we think of as the afterlife. In other words, anywhere that sentient beings reside would be part of mind at large. So we also have to think, therefore, mind at large is including the consciousness of other non-human sentient beings on this planet, anywhere from snails and worms, or even microbes perhaps, microbes might be conscious, I can't say that they're not, but certainly animals with a higher nervous system, mammals, for example, or vertebrates. and. To be honest, I think nonvertebrates like the octopi are quite conscious and have uh, shown a great deal of intelligence. So, mind at large would have to include all of the experiences, what it's like to be an earthworm, what it's like to be an octopus, what it's like to be a bacteria, if it, if it is like anything, or a virus, if it is like anything. These things we can debate. Maybe people who are gifted psychics could try to put it into words. Maybe people who are gifted poets can try to put it into words. But surely, if we're going to include life on Earth, animal life, as being part of mind at large, and to the extent that plant life is conscious, is sentient, if it is like something, for example, to be a tree, then the consciousness of trees would be included in mind at large. And naturally, all of this discussion means that to the extent that sentient life exists on other planets, and we know there could be a billion other planets in this galaxy that might support sentient life, and I don't know, maybe as many as a trillion other galaxies, each with a billion stars that might support sentient life. So, mind at large could be vast, for all we know, even infinite. The concept of infinity is something that you can't avoid when dealing with mind at large. But, let us come back for a moment to the hermetic axiom, as above, so below. I think it means something more than the heavenly realms are a mirror image of the hellish realms. The higher worlds and the lower worlds reflect each other in, in some sense. I don't think that's what it means. I have a different take on it. And one of the reasons I don't think that you, that there's a symmetry between heaven and hell is because all of the data in parapsychology, the data that we get from near death experiencers seems to be very much biased. That is to say, the reports are much more about universal, unconditional love. Only, let us say, five percent, some people say eight percent, some people say three percent of near-death experience reports have anything to do with the hellish realm. But, coming back to the notion of as above, so below, here's what I Think we might want to pay attention to. The human being, so below, refers, I think, to the human being, and as above, refers to mind at large. So, to the extent that the human being Human consciousness contains heaven and hellish experiences, yes, so does mind at large, to the extent that human consciousness involves both intentional conscious acts of will and acts that are not so much willful but are motivated by subconscious or even unconscious drives forces. And there's many different definitions of the subconscious and the unconscious. But what I'm suggesting is if we take the axiom as above, so below, seriously, then mind at large itself contains a conscious, willful aspect and an unconscious or subconscious aspect. One way, perhaps, to think of this is, is to consider all of the, I'm going to call them for the moment, mythological entities said to reside in uh, the, this larger consciousness. You've got fairies, and gnomes, and elves, and dwarves, and elementals, and demigods, and titans, and devas, and djinns, and angels, and archangels. One might say a whole zoo of of entities that are ascribed to a supersensual realm. Entities that, uh, if you really dig into the reports that are in the literature, people say they sometimes materialize in the sense that when a person experiences one of these entities, they seem as real as anything physical. Now, whether they are as real as anything physical is a matter of debate, because one thing we do know for sure about the human mind is that it is capable of fantasy. When I was a child, I loved the Raggedy Ann books. I loved The Wizard of Oz books. I loved children's stories about Young children who would fly the backs of dragons at night, for example. I don't think there's anybody who would doubt that the human mind is capable of making up stories, stories that are unrelated. To reality but seem true, are as if they are true, and have maybe a moral lesson to them or at least entertainment value. So, there is something called a fantasy realm within human consciousness and certainly within mind at large as well. In other words, if you hold a fantasy very, very uh, intensely, if you concentrate on a fantasy realm, it can obtain a status that uh, the philosopher Henri Corbin called imaginal, as distinct from imaginary. Imaginal, as distinct from imaginary, means something more than fantasy and maybe something not quite as tangible as physical reality, (laughs) knock on wood, so to speak, that there is a realm of consciousness, part of mind at large, which is created by the processes in sentient beings such as ourselves. That is to say that uh, the land of Oz may exist in an imaginal realm, different than an imaginary realm. This is very important, of course, in the philosophy of Henri Corbin, who became a Sufi. He studied uh, Sufism in Turkey, as I recall, possibly in Iran, as as well he began studying in particular the philosophy of illuminism developed in the 12th century i believe by a great persian mystic named suravardi and uh, corbin's teachers corbin lived in the 1940s 1950s perhaps into the 60s i'm not sure exactly his his dates I'll post them. But the, the point I'm trying to make is this. Corbin's teachers said to him, he should study with them because they could impart to him, they could initiate him into the philosophy of Illuminism, the tradition, the lineage of Suravardi. And Corbin said in response, well, that's really not going to be necessary because in the imaginal realm, Suravardi is initiating me directly himself. That's how real it was for him. Some process was going on in, you could say, in mind at large. You see, there's a relationship between the individual mind and mind at large, and the imaginal realm is part of that relationship. It may be, for all we know, just how remote viewing works. I know when I first engaged in remote viewing at SRI International in 1976, February as I recall, Russell Targ said to me, close your eyes and let your subconscious, ask your subconscious mind to give you permission to receive accurate information about the target. In other words, what you imagine to be true about the target, you will form mental images about the target and they will be accurate. They will be realistic. How does that work? I know I'm jumping around a lot here, and it's necessary to do that when talking about a concept like Mind at Large. Because the point I'm trying to get at is, What if God also has an unconscious, just like humans? Maybe God isn't the epitome of perfection that theologians like to describe. Maybe God is something else. Or maybe we have no idea. I think honest theologians often talk about Anything you say about God limits God and therefore it can't be quite true. It would be rather presumptuous of me to try and develop a theology. I'd like to. I think we need a new theology. We need a theology, for example, that can take into account the data of parapsychology and, as well, the data of psychedelic research. These are two important fields of study that are both pointing toward the necessity of a concept like mind at large. But, to define that concept more precisely is going to be Well, let me say it uh, this way. It's going to be the work of the next century to map out mind at large, to talk about the... Well, for example, I've mentioned heaven and hell. Uh, We ought to take into account purgatory. How many different slices, different levels, different scenes, if you will, are there in heaven? in hell and in purgatory. How many different ways of looking at it, just from the human perspective alone? (laughs) If one were to simply uh, look at all the philosophical and literary accounts already in the existing human literature, it would be vast. But imagine if sentient beings, let us say on other planets, also have their own descriptions, and their own descriptions are colored by their bodies, their environment, their unique histories. So, we're talking about mapping something that is potentially infinite. And the only way we could begin to create such maps is to focus on ourselves, the human being, as as the center of a of an infinite world. Because uh, that's one of the definitions of infinity. Infinity is a circle, a globe, one might say, that has no circumference, and no matter where you are, you're always at the center. Isn't that intriguing? So. Uh, we might say that there is a sense in which mind at large is infinite without boundaries, potentially. And yet, we, humble humans living on a small planet in a an average galaxy uh, circling around, a relatively average star, one of maybe a billion such planets just in this galaxy are at the center of things. Necessarily so. But, at the same time, the center isn't that meaningful if if everyone else uh, on every other planet is also at the center. What this is pointing to is a unique paradox. And and the paradox is simply that if you're watching me on TV right now or on your computer screen, you see that I'm in a body. I am not an infinite being. I'm a very finite being. I am encapsulated by my skin. and You could understand why most of The scientific establishment anywhere in the world, it's sort of an axiom in the neurosciences that my consciousness is nothing more than the product of neurological activity going on inside of my skin, inside of my body. So, how does that ego consciousness, individual animal consciousness, how does that relate to mind at large? This could be a very long conversation if I begin to bring up people like, for example, the philosopher Bernardo Kastrup, who's been interviewed on New Thinking Aloud many times. And he invokes a simple concept. I like to think of it as a membrane. Each individual consciousness is somehow distinct from mind at large. This is an important paradox because individual consciousness only can exist by virtue of partaking of mind at large and yet, at the same time, it's distinct. It's encapsulated somehow. Now, if you're looking at this picture on a uh, video screen, you can see the capsule is what we call a body. But what happens after death? If individual consciousness is to survive and maintain its individual integrity after death, it needs somehow, in the words of uh, Stuart Hameroff, who discussed it in one of my interviews, it needs to maintain its uh, quantum correlations. It's the aspects of consciousness need to remain correlated with each other or they will be dispersed. One might say like a drop in the ocean. A drop in the ocean doesn't retain its distinctiveness unless it is somehow encapsulated, somehow becomes a bubble of some sort in the ocean, has a membrane. Now we know uh, skin as a physical membrane. The, The issue that really intrigues me is what other kinds of membranes might exist. For example, membranes in hyperspace. Because, surely, mind at large, being, I think, potentially infinite in nature, is also going to partake of hyperspace. And When we think of hyperspace, an important concept to consider is known as Hilbert space, named after the great mathematician David Hilbert. Hilbert space is hyperspace of infinitely many dimensions. So, we have three dimensions of space, one dimension of time we can think of. That's our four-dimensional space-time, and people talk about the fifth dimension, the sixth dimension. They used to talk about the fourth dimension before it sort of got taken up by time. I remember people talking about the fourth dimension, but it could go all the way up to infinity. Superstring theory, as I understand it, talks about 11 or 12 dimensions of space. And we're not even yet getting involved in dimensions of consciousness and how dimensions of consciousness might interpenetrate, be related to dimensions of space. But if we're going to talk about the encapsulation of the ego or the soul or the spirit so that it can survive the death of the body and continue in within mind at large, and of course anybody who's been watching this New Thinking Aloud channel understands there's a vast amount of data supporting exactly that. Then one needs to ask if you want to probe it more deeply, what is this membrane? Is it an astral membrane? Is it an imaginal membrane And what is the evolution of these such a membrane? What? How does that work? What happens when the body dies? I know, for example, I am intimately connected with my body. If I shut my eyes, I no longer see. If I open my eyes, I do. I know you can't see very clearly, because for some reason my eyes are like little slits. As I grow older, my eyelids seem to grow bigger. It's <laughs> but that aside. There is the, the question of, uh, we're so attached to our bodies. If, if I touch my hand, I feel it. That's what it's like to be me. It's part of being in this body. Imagine how it changes after death without a physical body, as the Buddhists would say, no tongue to speak with, no ears to hear with, no eyes to see with, and yet, one of the qualities of mind at large, as experienced by Aldous Huxley when he reported on his psychedelic experiences, and as experienced uh, by other writers talking about states of consciousness uh, like samadhi or cosmic consciousness, it's the ability to be aware of everything at once something that defies language all together there's no way you can begin to describe it and uh, i think uh, even in a psychedelic experience the human finite being can't even take it all in i mean the whole concept of mind at large is essentially that the body the brain the nervous system functions as a filter to keep mind-at-large out, because if we were aware simultaneously of everything all at once, it would blow out all our circuits. We might go crazy. I I don't know what would happen uh, to us. I suspect it is a state of consciousness experienced occasionally by mystics and by poets, but only for brief periods of time because I, I just don't think the finite mortal being of a, a, a human, or even a very advanced creature, could sustain it. It's way too complex. And, and Although, I will say this, Our bodies are extremely complex also. There are probably a hundred billion neurons in the brain, and the neurons have axons and dendrites, so it's an incredible network. The potential neural circuits within the human brain, I've heard some people say there are as many neural circuits within the human brain as there are subatomic particles within the whole known universe. Of course, the whole known universe itself is only a finite piece of what is very likely an infinite realm. Here I am, a very finite mortal being speaking to you, using the medium of video to talk about infinity, to talk about the possibility, or even better, the likelihood that each one of us partakes of mind at large, and that that mind is so vast, uh, if it's not infinite it might as well be, it's so much bigger than we are. I'd like to say a lot more about Mind at Large. I'd like to, maybe someday I'll have the luxury of being able to write a book about it, but for the time being, my means of communication is like this. It's on video. This is how I communicate with the world, primarily. Not that I don't write, I do write, but (laughs) so let me thank you for uh, sticking it out this far and uh, exploring with me the nuances, the subtleties, the ramifications of mind at large. And let me thank you, too, for being with us. <laughs> Thank you.